Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We really need your help to keep the platform going. And the good news is, it's really easy to do. The link is in the podcast you're listening to right now. All you gotta do is, while you're listening, click on it, have a read of the levels, and see if there's something that fits your budget that helps us keep this show on the road. It's the only way we keep things going. We are ad-free, sponsor-free, and we rely entirely on you, dear listener. And it's not a one-way street. There's tons of exclusive content up there. There's over access to over a 1,000 of our back catalogue all in one place, including exclusives that don't go out anywhere else. And you get the podcast as quickly as we can turn them around. So right now, this morning, we put out a conversation with the great actor Claire Dunn, and that's there right now, as well as the conversations that we had with Issam Adwan in, in Gaza and Angus Kelly, who has just come back for a few days from Kiev to talk about war crimes in Ukraine. All of those are available, as I said, in one feed. Uh, whether it's Reboot, whether it's Echo, whether it's Glow West, whether it's Built Different, they're all in the one place and you don't have to listen to me beg for your support. So think of it as a gift you give to yourself. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Do click that link. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined the podcast today by a, I suppose, a long um, colleague of mine um, and, I suppose, fellow fellow traveller activist in, in the journey of um, climate and social justice and inequality, Sean McCabe. Uh, Sean, how are you? I'm doing great, Rory. Thanks for having me on. No, delighted to have you on. Of course, we we would have met along the road in Task, which yeah. was the think tank on inequality where I worked for a while and you worked for a while too. Absolutely. You had, you had left by the time I got there, but uh, you definitely had left an impression as well. <laughs> a good one, of course. A good one. Yeah, yeah. No, 100%. <laughs> Listen, Sean, um, just to explain to our listeners, you are the climate justice officer with uh, Bohemians Football Club in Dublin. Um, and you also provide strategy to the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative, which we'll talk a bit about. And you were also at the COP Summit, um, just gone there. And maybe explain what, who is the and what is the climate justice officer with Bose? Uh, yeah, a lot of people ask that question. I think it's uh, a bit of an unusual step, but I think I think it's making more sense as we progress. Uh, actually, it, it was born out of a piece of work done in Task and um, the People's Transition, which looked at how we would uh, mobilize enduring support for climate action by spreading the opportunities that are brought by climate action more democratically and using community wealth building to democratize the economies of the future, essentially. Um, yeah. and, and at that time, I approached Bose. I was a member and approached Dan Lambert and said, hey, could Bohemians potentially be a community wealth builder in this model? And he sort of said, well, it can be if you do it. And so I ended up roped into that, which was a real... Uh, I never taught, I've been a football fan my whole life, never taught a combining climate action and football. So it worked out pretty well. Fantastic. And it's going great. Yeah, it's going really, it's actually going exceptionally well, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a paid role, like. Uh, no, well, it was a voluntary role. Um, I've I've uh, taken um, s- some project management. Uh, we, we've received two pretty significant grants. Um, okay. One from, uh, well, we've now got three. We've got a, an Erasmus program going with the EU, which includes like eight other football clubs across Europe. So we led an application for that with like Werder Bremen, FC Pauli, Real Betis, all of La Liga in Spain. And that's a football for climate justice sort of um, 
project, which is really interesting uh, and and kind of really people focused rather than just sort of reducing footprints, etc. Looking yeah. at how how clubs can reach their fans in a meaningful way. Um, so that's happening, and then we've 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 some Creative Ireland funding, which is coming to an end, and we've now just recently received half a million, um, from Pubble to look at how we could build an actual climate cooperative under the club. So as these are progressing, it's gone from voluntary to uh, part time to potentially in January uh, full time. Which Very is good. Well done. Well done. That's amazing. Sounds really interesting. Jesus, you could do uh, have lots of conversations on all in each of those. Uh, I, I definitely want to talk about the cooperative bit and what that means and what, what that involves. Um, but it, first, the and I'm thinking, of course, football and climate justice and uh, what we've just seen in terms of the World Cup and the climate footprint and sustainability. What what was your take on that? Did you allow yourself watch the World Cup or? Well, you see, I succumbed. I, <laughs> I succumbed to it. I, I boycotted the group stages. And then as the matches just got better and better, I ended up sort of watching a half here and there. And then sure by the semifinals with Morocco in the semifinals, you were glued to it, right? So yeah, this is the problem. And this was the problem that was raised, you know, like there's been similar issues, obviously, with FIFA in Brazil, uh, similar, similar issues in terms of the Russian World Cup. Like there's a lot of activists trying to highlight issues. And then as the matches kick off and the football takes over, like it unites us, right? Like it. Yeah. And so unfortunately, the, the human rights abuses and and all of that horror show in the background uh, does fade into the background, which which is a massive problem. But it's systemic corruption within the agency, right? Like that has to be rooted out. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it it's um it, it is it, and it's a real dilemma, I think, in, on many levels. For you know, in a way, how do you survive capitalism and go through it while also trying to change it and transform it? Yeah. Yeah, well, nobody's going to listen to you if you try to ban the World Cup, right? Like, <laughs> you've seen the street scenes in Argentina today. Like, yeah, it's such a powerful tool for reaching people. So, but then it also has like these sort of nonsense notions of the Super League or, or you know, uh, billionaire investors. So it's got all the problems of the society we face, but it also has this reach and, 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 um, compelling interest that most other things in life don't have. People just aren't as interested in other stuff anymore as they are in football. And so yeah. if we used it as the right delivery model, and obviously like Bose, it's, it's, we're, we're in a unique situation in Bose where we've been fan-owned for our entire history. We are a cooperative, essentially. And, and so that allows us to try things that, you know, might, thanks to the reach of football, proliferate quite quickly if we get it right, which is exciting. We had a bizarre phone call last week with um, the Golden State Warriors because they heard about what we were doing and wanted to learn more and wanted to see. They have, have to a, forgive my utter ignorance. Who are the Golden State Warriors? They're, they're the current reigning a band NBA. Of ninjas from, <laughs> a band of ninjas. They're the reigning NBA champions. Oh, very good. That's basketball, yeah? That's basketball, yeah. So, yeah. so kind of much obviously. If it goes between, beyond hurling and soccer, I suppose. <laughs> Well, we're talking to the GAA as well, so that's pretty exciting. If we could get GAA mobilized on climate justice, that could be fantastic. Yeah, no, it, it is. It, it's really interesting, and it, it's just the timing of our conversation around the the World Cup, and you know, people will be, of course, seeing, and you know, a lot of people will have watched it. You know, I watched the final yesterday. Well, actually, I only watched the at last because I was in Croke Park watching my poor Bally Gunner from Waterford get beaten by Bally Hale from Kilkenny, but. Uh, my son was beside me, you know, with the, the Argentina-France match on the phone, you know, while we were <laughs> in Croke Park. It was very funny. 
But, um, you know, it is interesting that the football encapsulating, you know, the, the extreme inequality um, within the world today, that absolute inequality and commodification and commercialization of everything, while also, as you say, holding out this complete other value system, you know, basis, uh, you know, on, as you say, what the beautiful game should be and what it does and bringing people together and uniting all peoples across the world and in, into seeing it. It's fascinating. But also it's it's grounded in working class communities, right? Like if you look at the history of so many of the great football clubs around the world, they come from workers, um, factory workers or, or textile workers in Manchester. And, 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 and that history stayed true up until kind of the advent of the Premier League and things like that yeah. and, and, and the big money influx. But it's not that long. And there, like there's that generational appeal, generational knowledge. And, and so what we're finding, I think, as we step into the, you know, and Bose, obviously, we've tried to do other things than climate and, and they've worked quite well in terms of um, like, you know, the refugees welcome campaigns or yeah. campaigns around uh marriage equality referendum those type of things have yeah. had a resonance because you bring a conversation very strong in the football against racism as well and yeah yeah it's it, and, and but but I, like sometimes it can be difficult to start the conversations but once you start them um they really spread quite quickly you know like it's it's a, an incredible gateway to reach people who maybe um don't uh pay as much attention to the front pages yeah. uh, as the back pages of the papers. And, and, and so, um, and, and these are the people you need on side, right. To yeah. really catalyze the movements that we're hoping to see happen in terms of tackling those gross inequalities or, um, you know, d- d- preventing those gross inequalities being replicated in the climate transition. Yeah. So, so that's, that's where, that's where the co-op is directed at and, and our work so far. Yeah, it's it's um yeah, it's really it's it's fascinating and it's um it's intriguing that connection. And, and maybe just tell us a little bit what was Doha like and explain how did you end up there and well I've been going to COP for a long time. Um Lima in twenty fourteen was my first, and I'm kind of hoping Doha will be my last. Um it's uh I've been working on climate justice in that space for a long time. So I worked with Mary Robinson before I joined Task. Um, and, and that was an interesting time because we were trying to inform the Paris Agreement and make sure that there were human rights included and the rights but language. You must that, have been only, I'm looking at the, the age, you must have been only like 10 when you were working Mary Robinson, was it? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I had a few years under my belt now at that stage, unfortunately. Um, what brought you there? What, how did you end up there? I ended up there because I'd actually started, I, I came out of... Um, College, studied physics, came out, ended up working in Bermuda, would you believe, in, in, on sort of a catastrophe risk modeling for a reinsurance company. It's very interesting wow. and exciting, but uh, very divorced from a lot of the, the maybe realities that I, I, I felt I, I, I understood. And so I, after a few years there, I left and moved to Calcutta in India and worked in a hospice yeah. um, for two I years. Now. What, where, where, where did all that come from? Which the hospice in India? Yeah, no, no, but you're gone from Bermuda to, to Calcutta. To... <laughs> yeah, well, well, uh, my mother uh, had helped um, uh, a man in India set up a school up in the northeast of India. Uh, and so I'd always known about like people working in Calcutta who had been doing some really interesting things in terms of mm. at the coalface of poverty. And, and um, 
when I decided to leave and what that brought company, your mother to that? Uh, well, that's a long and complex, uh, well, not that complex, but, but my, my mom and dad have always sort of been involved in that type of work. And, and uh, so, um, yeah, she had, she w- ended up working in a, a Christian brother school in Drogheda and, and they built a link with mm, um, yeah. a, a community in, in Shillong in Northeast India. And yeah. they ended up, I don't know if you've ever read The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Freire. I have indeed. Uh, I teach it to my students. Yeah, well, so 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 the school was based on that on Paolo Freire's philosophy of education, okay. and, and it became it's became become a really, you know, it started off as being a single single classroom with a single teacher, and now it's a, a fully fledged primary school for, yeah. for for kids who live in a matriarchal society, actually in 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 Shillong in 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 um, northeast India, and and but but my mom had all of these contacts as a result in Calcutta working in in. You know, uh, I suppose at the coalface, really. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and so I knew I could go just go out there and start working. It wasn't like one of these volunteerism trips or whatever. And ended yeah. up being a, a two year stay that really changed everything. You know. And then, um, so when I came back, I what do you mean it changed everything? Well, like you sit with a lot of people who die of just poverty, and your values like you can never escape that. That's then a a, a reality in our world. Um. Yeah. And you know, and and we've seen it since, obviously, with, with you know with all the work that you're looking at in terms of of um, the loss of life in our own city here due to people being being left in incredibly vulnerable situations. But there was something really stark about it, and um, um, you're, it's very hard to resume a normal life after you've seen that. You know, like even yeah. children dying in poverty. Uh, women in incredibly vulnerable situations. So, um, yeah, I came back and, and bounced around in a really, uh, what would you say, a sort of um, a haphazard way as you do after something like that, where you've got, yeah. you're, you're, you feel like your learnings no longer um, kind of align with what you'd like to do in life. And you're applying for NGOs and they don't want to have you because you've no valid experience and that sort of yeah. thing. So, so I ended up studying again. And at the end of those studies, um, I anticipated moving back to India. That was my real ambition to continue mm. that sort of work. But I, I got a job offer with the Mary Robinson Foundation and just stuck with that. And that's where climate justice started. And I've been working on it since. Very good. Fascinating. It, it's um, it's kind of those things, they stay with you, don't they? When you experience that and see it is true, when you see the impact and, and feel the impact and poverty of poverty on, you know, your fellow human beings, you don't really, if you really in, internalize it and empathize with it, you can't really look at things the same again. No, you become, yeah, it, it's actually um, taken me a while to just be, um, or it took me a while afterwards, even just to be like sound around people again, you yeah. know, because it's so front of mind that you begin to be just a bummer, you know? Yeah. And and it's not like you're in trying to, or, but um it's very, it's very traumatizing. I think, like, I think I dealt yeah. with a lot of trauma after it, but um, uh, then it just strengthens your resolve to not accept things as they are necessarily, or, or you know, you know, and and if we were to talk about the climate piece and looking at things like, you know, the, you're talking about Doha, the deeply rooted colonial structures that still exist within the climate negotiations. Yeah. 
you know, these things don't have to be accepted as they are and, and shouldn't be because, um, you know, the consequence is the deaths of people who, you know, have no hand actor part in the, in the um, crisis that was created. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, it just, it, 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 it strengthens your resolve. Just not, like having those experiences strengthens your resolve not to, um, take cheap explanations for why people are poor. Yeah, absolutely. And so in terms of Doha then, what yeah, what what did you see? What was your takeaway from it? Where where do you think we're at in terms of climate? It's 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 concerning, I think. Like you know, the high water mark of the last 10 years of the climate negotiations was the Paris Agreement. Um at the time when that was um signed a lot of very prominent NGOs would have been saying, this is very substandard. We need to go far beyond it. Yeah. Um, but it's a starting point. Yeah. And now, like seven years later, we're having conversations where people are still trying to get their ambition to the Paris level. Like, so we knew in 2015, it was subpar. Mm. And, and we're now falling way short of that. And time is marching on and the impacts... Like Christ, there's still leaves coming down on the trees outside of us here in, in yeah. Pittsburgh. I'd like, but we're seeing the, the the shifts occur, and you know it was very hard to escape in Doha, um, and it's been increasing ever since Paris. Is that sort of corporate capture of those negotiations of that agenda, and in many ways, it's the same as the Sustainable Development Goals. You're seeing like these UN processes really kind of. You know, there, there, there was a great focus around 2015 on the potential of the private sector to mobilize the, the money that would, would transform our societies. And really what it has amounted to is obviously a hollow enough, uh, you know, what would you say, hypothesis then. But what it has amounted to in reality is countries with scarce resources using public money to create an enabling environment for the private sector to do climate business, which, like, at its very best, will address the needs of the wealthy in that country. And at, at its very worst, will lead to situations like we're seeing around the displacement of people for the creation of, um, you know, these carbon sink forests, monoculture forests that mm. move indigenous people off their land so that a company here can say they're going net zero through offsetting. You know, so... We have this real um, challenge, I think, where something like COP needs to maybe just go back to what it is, and that's negotiating the rule book, and and pull out all of those sort of private sector interests that are, um, and, and like, and that includes NGOs as well, going over to and and spending their scarce resources, uh, spending a fortune in a place like Sharm El Sheikh, thousand quid a night or something on a hotel, and you know these aren't helpful ways of getting to the solutions we need to get to. So my sense would be the cops have become very bloated and almost, uh, you know, they really feed into, they, they don't do a good job of trying to not be what a lot of the detractors want to say they are, which are these elitist bloated conventions that achieve nothing. Yeah. I wouldn't take quite that negative a view, but it's very hard not to when you see a place like Sharm El Sheikh also beset with human rights issues, a bit like Doha. Um, and, and then these very glitzy pavilions um, talking about all these like 
glitzy sort of climate action projects, but you know that the reality is very divorced from that. So I don't think it's the mechanism by which we'll deliver climate action. Uh, and I think it might have, in its current guise, achieved its high watermark and maybe needs to be reinvented. Yeah, it it's definitely strikes me that is it because the in a way our, our economic system driven by you know the the this relentless need for growth and and you know the requirement of companies to the large corporations to continuously make higher profits and higher returns to their shareholders and you know, as you've discussed this with someone recently about, you know, again, the ongoing conversation, this idea of, you know, the inbuilt obsolescence that we don't, you know, companies don't make things to last. They make things so that they, you know, actually break and then you have to buy a new one off them. And even I was looking at, you know, the, that ad, you've probably seen it for the new Galaxy, uh, Samsung, uh, not uh, Samsung Galaxy foldable phone. And I just go, it is one of the most disturbing ads. There's lots of disturbing ads, but this one in particular about how it doesn't even mention anything about the phone. It just shows the image of the phone folding and, and the, the the millennial or Gen Z uh, young person just literally being obsessed with wanting to get that phone and not sleeping and waking up at night and cold sweats, not having it. And, and I just go and like, where is the concern or where is the climate change or sustainability within that, like within these very large corporations? And if they're driving our economy and government is unwilling to challenge or change that model, then we're fooling ourselves. Completely, yeah, completely. I think one thing that's very interesting from us, for, from an Irish context, is, you know, we could, we could get to zero tomorrow uh, and it'd be the equivalent of Manchester going to zero, right? Like, we're not a major emissions player, right? Yeah. But where we are a major player is in setting the global finance financial regime, right? And and our corporate tax rate and, and, and our tax haven status is literally providing a means to rob other countries of climate finance. Yeah. You know, because you know, we need for for the for the billion people who still live in uh, abject energy poverty around the world. Their governments need to somehow uh, achieve zero emissions and get energy to their people, right? And and they're not going to do that in a world where you're still siphoning money out of developing countries through tax havens, through unequal trade systems. So so that whole global, you know, when it we can go from the phone and, and the phone then almost could. You could blow that apart and look at all the various components that feed into it and how many countries the exploitation of their people yeah. and their their minerals yeah. have gone into creating that phone, which has an inbuilt obsolescence and, and because it's required to feed an insatiable thirst of, of, of the current economic paradigm. Um, but that insatiable thirst and that obsolescence, that's how people are treated in yeah. developing countries through these systems. Um, and it's that whole extractive model, uh, whether it's minerals or people's time and dignity. It's just taking and and like you know feeding it to a smaller and smaller cohort all the way through until it's you know uh, eventually financing an, an elite. So where none of this is very hopeful yet, but we could get on to the <laughs> hopeful piece. There, which, really? oh, yeah. 
<laughs> which I think I understand the hopeful piece as well. But but like if we can like the idea that somehow that system can then ride into a place like top and provide meaningful solutions. You know, like if you think about adaptation, the concept of building flood defenses or taking basic steps that save people's lives. Yeah. There's no return on any investment there. So the countries that are facing the greatest need for adaptation, and that's going to be about 300 billion a year globally by 2030. Nobody's going, no private sector entity is going to meaningfully invest in adaptation because there's no return. So that has to be public funding. And if we have a corporate tax rate that is preventing countries in the developing world from uh, raising their own finances to undertake those very necessary steps, what you're going to then see is the people who have been failed in terms of adaptation migrating, right? And they're going to come to Europe and they're going to be in the boats that go down in the Mediterranean. And and so it all feeds into this massive, um, like very uncomfortable future that we're facing unless we quite radically transform our path. And that brings us to questions of hope and change. So we'll we'll get to how do we change or will we start? Let's do both. We'll do both together. Um, I I was talking to students of mine and asking them about their concerns for the climate. And I was quite struck by the number of them who felt that climate wasn't a priority for them because the reality for them was cost of living, was housing issues. And of course, we know that, um, that people who are living, you know, in housing insecurity, an entire generation, you know, as we were just talking before you came on in terms of renting in your own situation and insecurity, that notions of climate, uh, uh, Naomi Klein famously said, you know, you can't think about the end of the world when you're, you can't even think or about the, the end of the week or you're trying to get through to the end of the week. And I think there is something in that. Um, so how do we engage people around climate when they are literally living a crisis of survival? Yeah, completely. I, like we did a we did a poll with Task, uh, one of the last projects that I did. Um, it, it looked at this exact question. Like it asked people to rank. Uh, we we did a. Um, uh, Red Sea poll asking yeah. people to rank um, their their priorities, and we included cost of living, we included housing, we included environment. We included, we had ten issues, and climate consistently across all age groups came out last, and environment came out second last, or they'd flip around. But yeah. like the reality is, it's not uh, as much as people like me would love it to be number one on everyone's priority list. It's not, and it's not going to become so on the time scale that we need to make the change. So if we're waiting for politicians to be motivated um, by demand in order to take the necessary climate action to avoid catastrophe, we're doomed, right? So what, what we actually have to do is flip it. And I nearly wouldn't talk about it in terms of climate. Like, I don't think people want, I don't think regular people who are going about, like you say, trying to make it to the end of the week, facing a cost of living crisis, facing like issues of energy poverty, in this country, which are increasing all the time, yeah. uh, you know, facing facing issues of 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 um, uh, you know, the housing crisis, like it's 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 madness to wade in and be like, hey, you know, turn down your shower or take a fire, you know, like that's nonsense. So, uh, to me, 
it's about building the solutions into what people's priorities are. And, you know, that, that's kind of where the people's transition work was aimed at was how do you design a system where you identify the needs of a community? It has to be on the hyper-local. This is the other thing. We, the solutions, we have to stop thinking about like nationwide solutions for these things. We have to look uh, at the local level, identify local needs, local priorities, and solve those local needs and priorities in a way that's also beneficial for the climate. Yeah. But the minute you start sitting people down and saying, when are you going to start taking climate action? You're losing, right? Like one of the obvious pieces here is, is, is the challenge of retrofitting homes in Ireland. Now that's, that's the cooperative that we're establishing and, and the grant that we've received so far is, is, is purely to set up the cooperative, to establish articles of association and, and, and learn to do some basic projects like a bicycle library or a library of things in a cooperative manner so that we develop that culture. But ultimately, where we'd like to get to is a scenario where we are training people, uh, whether you know, whether that's in Mount Joy, where we have actually are a partner on, on our, our cooperative project, or, or people, maybe uh, young people who uh, are fans of the club, but are also at risk of criminality or other issues, uh, training them in the green skills, like, you know, the, the retrofitting skills, the, the mm. solar photovoltaic manufacturer sort of type of thing. And, and then looking at how we pair them through innovative financing with homes facing energy poverty and, and actually address both the cost uh, deficit and the um, skills deficit at the same time and, and create a situation where you have positive news stories on both sides of that equation right? and, yeah. and suddenly you're not talking about climate at all you're not trying to preach to people about polar bears and ice caps you're just like here this old woman has a cold home now she doesn't and these guys have jobs that they can be proud of and and want to be part of a, a society that values the work that they do and and I think one of the big mistakes that we've made all the way through on climate, right, is that it's existing, like the climate expert has had to be the economics expert, has had to be the buildings expert, you know, the architectural expert. All of these ludicrous, like, like it's an entire cha- transformation of society we're going through. And historically, it's always been like five people talking about climate change and, yeah. and being experts across all, which they're not, they're, they can't be experts across all these fields. So it's really about embedding that transformation into everything and doing it in a way that lifts people's living standards uh, gives people opportunity. But that's again, back to that question. And, and this, you know, will resonate, I guess, with, with your, your work on housing is like the, the ideological paradigm upon which this is rolled out is very important because if you think the community isn't capable of delivering this stuff, if it's only, if the only people who are able to do this are corporates, you know whether that's owning a wind farm, uh, owning a you know a, you know a, a community a heating project, whatever it is. If we only think that that can be delivered by the private sector, we hand over the new economy to the same bunch of people that run the old economy. Whereas if we say these can be done by communities, a community can own a wind turbine, and then receive the two hundred to five hundred thousand a year that comes from that wind turbine and pump that into other community development projects, suddenly it could be a very enabling uh, transformation, right? Like you could do something totally new and totally different in this country. 
Yeah, I, I'm. I'm uh, definitely glad we got to the hope bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not no, much. <laughs> no, it's it, it, it's it is um, really really good hearing that because um, it does link directly to the case and arguments I've been making around housing because you know I very much have seen for a number of years that potential to and it's interesting you're saying like not framing it in climate in terms of climate that that I you know I've been making the case that through housing we could address both the housing crisis and climate crisis simultaneously and you know and I've been making that both in terms of existing the retrofitting of existing homes and, and of course the issue that you point to rightly is that and it's coming now really starkly is that you know government's entire retrofitting plan has been based on homeowners basically been able to fund it themselves and so we have that growing gap between um the homeowner who can afford to retrofit their home or buy a very expensive new a1 rated home or a2 rated home stick in the fuller the solar panels buy the uh, hot tub for the back garden and live in luxury while those who can't are living and facing higher and higher energy costs um and then similarly you've got renters who landlords have no obligation to retrofit their home or where they are retrofitting their home they're kicking the tenants out and then saying, um, oh, well, the rent is up, you know, and who's enforcing that they're not doing that? Um, and then, of course, you have, you know, where are people going to get new homes from? And how are we developing them in a low carbon, zero carbon way? And we could, of course, be integrating, as I make the case in my book, for a whole new way of, of living in terms of an economy, integrating renewable community, renewable energy into sustainable homes that, you know, the that young people and people who are going to get them could be involved in and tackling vacancy and dereliction and that there is a real, real potential for a whole reshaping of our society and economy through that. It could be colossal, right? Like um, we know we're at a breaking point in many ways and not just in Ireland, but I know it's particularly acute in Ireland, but if we continue on the path we're on, inequality will break us, right? And the problem with the climate crisis, as you point out there, is those who can afford, like it's it's insane to be in a situation where only the rich can afford cheap energy. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And and if we continue down that path, all of the benefits of climate action will accrue to a smaller and smaller group of people and and, and it'll make their lives cheaper. So so it will radically increase inequality. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that's true, too, on the global scale. You're looking at the situation now where you have small island developing states who are against their debt ceiling, so they can't borrow. Uh, they're hooked on fossil fuels uh, and they're being buffeted by the impacts of climate change. So how the hell are they supposed to do a transition? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like if you can't borrow to build renewables, you fall further and further behind in the global scheme of things as well. Um, yeah. So, you know, this this... We have to start seeing energy as a public good or handing it over to communities and, and giving communities the means then to use that energy to supercharge local development in a meaningful way. And that could be true housing. It could be, but using that community wealth building model to drive opportunities, but also like, you know, create good quality jobs within the community, true cooperative models, true worker owned models. 
And, and, and you know, imagine a worker-owned cycle courier cooperative here, which would be doing last mile deliveries, which is a significant component of deli- like delivery carbon footprints. But it also take a lot of uh, young people out of very precarious work. Uh, and it would it would potentially um you know it could drive the likes of Deliveroo and 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 just eat out of town and you could you could have a worker owned equivalent. Um there, there's things that that are very practical and, and real and could make people's lives very much much better. Um we just need to kind of we need a little bit of policy as well to to you know update cooperative legislation and stuff. But it's um it's a real there's real opportunity. Uh, do you, is it happening? Is there an increase in cooperatives in Ireland? Cooperative approaches, or or is it still? I think that comes back to. Um, uh, I think I'd say probably not. I I don't think there necessarily is an increase. There's a lot a lot more focus maybe in the last ten years, and you know UCC has a cooperative studies course now, and and you know, there's the Dublin Food Co-op is holding its own in, in town here, and so there are things uh, happening, but. Um, you know, I don't think you're seeing the radical proliferation that we need in order to really see that redistribution of 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 power within the economy. But that doesn't mean it's not something we strive for in the next ten years. You know, I, the, the cooperative housing piece—I'd I'd love to know what you think. But like, it's obviously a, a number of cooperative housing projects that could potentially be a a big part of the solution too, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think that you know, and I have again advocated this always. I think the cooperative model, which is that bringing together of people, that isn't you know, and I think it should be backed by the state and supported and funded, um, but has its own you know management, has its own coordination, and is driven by the values and needs of. The members and wider community that you know that is huge potential. Of course, we have a huge history of that in this country in terms of farming cooperatives and mills in rural areas where people came together, and in terms of actual delivering housing in the nineteen sixties and seventies, people came together. Um, and there is the the self organized architects. There's a co- group called Common Ground in Wicklow who are trying to develop um, community cooperative housing. There's Clock Jordan down in Tipperary. Um and obviously the Okulon Housing Alliance as well, which is there. Um, it's not exactly a cooperative, but it's trying to support communities. And you know, there is, I think, a real I hear anyway from you know young people as well a thirst to do things like that in, in new ways. And if there was a greater support by government and policy, you know that they could really could really take off and it is different i think a lot of times you know there's a lot of criticism of the state and government and in some ways you know they are overly bureaucratic and the local authorities and and then people say well you know the private for profit corporate end doesn't work so and cooperatives i think they do offer a different way of thinking and doing things that is that can kind of ways is um something that people can be involved in yeah but it actually requires socially quite a transformation of mindset Right, because it's a pooling of skills and resources, and for ages we've learned that you sell your skills. Yeah, you don't pool them. Yeah, and that's how you, that's how you make your income. But like the minute you start reaching out in the community and identifying who exists within that community, you realize you can be very self sufficient very quickly. Yeah, uh, if we had a culture of pooling, what we do. Um, yeah, but there so- is a lot of that. You know the. 
there's the moves in terms of clothes, in terms of even toys as, as a parent of, uh, you know, young kids. There's a lot more that sharing economy and that reusing economy is really growing, you know, informally, yeah. you know, on social media and, you know, people, you know, selling things that you might have thrown away before at, at a low price. And, the, you know, that is definitely there. And, um, you know, even like even you think of the charity shops and, you know, that's, there's a huge amount of reusing going on and, you know, it's a form of cooperative in a way it's not, not quite there, but it's, it's a different process and model than selling, you know, new goods constantly. And, so, you know, I think that, that there are, there are germs there, germs, <laughs> germinations of seeds as opposed yeah. to 30 viruses out everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, the clothes are clean. The clothes in the secondhand shops are dead clean. No, the, um, I think, and this is where coming back to football and where we began, like the real exciting thing for me about linking this cooperative idea to the football club, and it's a, it's a bit of a mountain to climb if we get it right, but it's exciting. If we prove that this model can work and if we set up the Bohemian Climate Cooperative in such a way that it can, you know, energize the fans and uh, bring meaningful opportunity to the community, then there's no reason why the same thing can't be done in Sligo or Betis in Seville or in St. Pauli, you know, or even over beyond with the Golden State Warriors, those ninjas you were talking about. Like, yeah. there's there's a real opportunity to proliferate a successful idea really quickly through the network of sport. And yeah, that's yeah. where it becomes very exciting because yeah. it's one thing getting something right, but we have to bring all we do to scale. And unless we're doing that on the climate piece, we're screwed. So. It's that um, it's that opportunity for proliferation that's very exciting. Yeah, I completely agree. And obviously, you know, there is models in terms of Mondragon in you know in, in northern in you know in, up in, in Basque country. Yeah, the Basque country. Um, and you know, you know, there's cooperatives that, as I said, you know, have existed in Ireland, but there are cooperatives internationally. You know, they're they're huge, and it is an alternative way of doing economics and an alternative way of managing the economy. And, and I think you're right in terms of scaling up. It's a really interesting thing that in some ways we have to, that has to be the way forward that we remake the economy and society in a sustainable way, rather than, you know, alongside trying to change it from the top and getting policy change, but we have to be remaking it now. Yep. Yeah. And again, that's back to the community wealth building piece. You know, we're hoping to have Matthew Brown, who started the Preston model, come talk to us in terms of how to be a community wealth builder. But like if, you know, and I know there's been initial conversations, but if Dublin City Council was to take on the community wealth building model and suddenly say that the procurement from all the major institutions in Dublin would be done locally, or even if just the procurement of climate action for the major institutions, was done locally. It would create a whole uh, influx of new jobs within the city. Um, and, and, and if those jobs existed within cooperative systems, you, you're really on a, you know, that's your new economy right there. Yeah. That's, that's, that's your democratized local economy, which is what we're craving, I think, at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, Sean, before we go backwards, uh, I think we'll definitely end on that bit of hope there and vision for the future. I, I think it's fantastic. Um, 
as a way forward and as a as a, I think cooperatives and that alternative because people are looking for that people are really really looking for you know how do we go forward with this how do we and I think you're absolutely right that they're at the heart of remaking you know a sustainable economy and a more equal society so listen Sean where can they check out your great work that's tricky enough uh, we don't have a, a proper um, cooperative website up yet but we will in uh, due course so I just keep an eye on um, the Bohemian social media. We do have a climate cooperative uh, Instagram and Twitter that people can follow. I have had responsibility for looking after them, so they haven't been very active, but um, they will become more active as we move. So it's uh, uh, BFC Clicco, C-L-I-C-O, Climate Cooperative. Um, and uh, there should be stuff on Instagram and, and Twitter uh, in the coming weeks and months Great. about this development. Great. Well, listen, I look forward to, to hearing more about it. I definitely think that there's there's a space there for bringing people together and informing them about this and, you know, and to spread this um, as a model and as a different way, as we said, of remaking society. And I wonder, is there ways we can get this out there and get people to start taking their own initiatives around the country through a cooperative model? Um, there definitely is potential for that. So look forward to working with you in the future again, Sean. Listen, take care. And um yeah, I don't know whether I'll make a Bose match or not. Um, I will have to get you into a game now. And with Waterford still uh, languishing, we'll get you up. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I never transferred my uh, my following from Waterford to any club in Dublin. I never really... Um, We're the obvious choice in the city, you know. But there, there really is no question about that, all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, John, thanks a million. Have a great Christmas and a new year, and we'll see you in 2020. Same to you, Rory. Thank you very much for having me on. <laughs>